Listening and, and trusting people for me is a, is a great way of bringing the positivity. These three pillars, the artistic, the social, and the financial, will pull each other out throughout their life. For me to go back and look at who I was and how can I make things better is an essential part of who I am. I've always told people that always like watching a painting that transforms into a different painter, into another painter. Welcome to the Theatre Art Live podcast, and hello, we're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Aguilera. And my name is Anna Robb. On this episode, we'll be talking to Gabrielle Dubé-Dupuis about show creation and storytelling. Gabrielle Dubé-Dupuis is a dedicated collaborator and an accomplished leader. Gabrielle has navigated with the greats of the industry, included iconic CEOs of Disney, Cirque du Soleil, MGM Grand, Wind Resort, and more. Gabrielle has been involved with creative teams that include the Beatles and Elvis, the great minds of Robert Lapage, Franco Dragon, and Mark Fisher. Gabrielle has been very fortunate to be part of some of the finding teams for various creations of Cirque du Soleil and eventually also became a creative leader. Agile photographer, filmmaker, and video editor, Gabrielle is building daily with everything around him a story. Hello. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to have you. Gabrielle, well, we, we've known each other for a little bit of a while, and thank you for joining us today. We've got so much that we could talk to you about, but let's start with your role. And when we talk about you uh, working in a creation process, what's your, what's your usual role? What, 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 what do you, what's the responsibilities that you take on when you've been working on creations? The last few years I've been uh, blessed and lucky to uh, have the opportunity to become a creative director for creation of shows. Uh, and I really felt like uh, this was an accumulation of so many years of, of exploring different paths and, and, into this, the, the creative uh, ideations of, of shows. And I really felt like I found my niche. Obviously, with this work stoppage right now, uh, we're all on pause. Uh, but I was, as of late, a creation director. This was uh, what it means. What is a creation director? I, I see it as the leader of a team that uh, will bring together uh, new ideation and um, come up with innovative and uh, compelling storytelling for development of shows. So as a creative leader, then you set forth uh, parameters, then you set forth uh, team members, and then you accompany them along. And you, uh, you try to create what is probably most important for me, a safe space for them to be able to create together. And then, of course, you manage the ups and downs throughout uh, those creative uh, months and, and sometimes years that it takes to uh, achieve the delivery of, which is when the audience starts to um, enter the theater. And that was creating a show 101. <laughs> <in three sentences. laughs> if it was so easy, I think more people would do it. 
Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For those who are not familiar perhaps with the maybe the circus style or some of the events that you've done, you know, a lot of people who work in the industry will start with a play script or they'll start with a musical score and they'll build from there. Where does the creative process begin when there isn't anything and there's that ideation process? Are you bringing a group of people together? Are you throwing ideas around? How is that channeled and funneled into something real? Well, I always try to start to think, uh, like, who is it for? Who's going to be seeing this performance? Now, is it going to be, you know, for a theater somehow, somewhere in Asia? Is it going to be for a theater in Las Vegas? Is it going to be for touring shows? Uh, How long is the project going to be there for? Is it for a summer? Is it for two years run? Is it for an indefinite run? These are all something that will have an effect and and a huge impact on how you want to develop this project. If you have to think long-term, you have to think about the longevity of the project. So how do you stay relevant for a period of 10 years in what you bring on the table? If it's for a summer, then you can really go and hit the trend that are in, in the world that we live in and really take advantage of those, you know, in order to give the audience something that will feel compelling at today's moment. So it's a different way of approaching, I think, at the end of the day, what is storytelling, you know? So how do you invite the audience and, and, and grasp them in order to have their attention and focus and give them emotion for a certain period of time, whether it's a 45-minute show or it's a two-hour show with intermission, you know? They're all very different. At the end of the day, how do you address the public? And I think that's the first thing. Who is the public? Who's going to be seeing this? And then, of course, there's all the parameters that comes within, you know, what it is that you want to do. Some projects will have a specific order. We want to do a show that has a certain sense of martial arts. We want to do something that appeals to this kind of audience. Uh, and then you start diverging towards that. But that's, for me, the blank page starts with that. After that, once you've made that pretty clear, I find it very easy to just wander off together with whether it's a stage director or your production director, your technical director, and then you start exploring and talk about it. And I think the conversation then goes into who we are as persons and what we like. And that experience of sharing, for me, becomes the creative spark. Because that's where you'll start to get a sense of authenticity between people. And from the authenticity, then we can bring in all of our experience and, and what we do and what we can do and, and apply it. But if you start creating uh, this line of authenticity, like I said, it's, then you're, you're, that's the foundation of the project, you know, and that in itself, you'll never really go wrong you'll, if your foundation is strong. So tell us a little bit more about this conversations that happen with your creative team that are going to be the foundation and this authenticity. How do you have these conversations? How do you manage to get a project that it's, authentic as you said or innovative and true to yourselves as well and then not being repetitive of course yeah yeah yeah. it's about finding a good balance i believe uh, uh, within your own team so you if i'm to build a creative team of designers uh, i would want to find a balance of young eager almost naive designers you know so that there's a certain sense of when you're a bit younger or you're just coming through, 
there's a hunger in in your eyes and, and it's something that you want to get and go get it now you mix that with a certain level of designers that have had experiences and knowledge and these two will challenge each other and that i think creates uh, an enormous amount of uh, of sparks within the team but also will help push forward uh, maybe if we want to say some of the uh, more experienced designers because they'll feel the fire under their uh, creative butt uh, by uh, <laughs> when when someone younger goes but why do you have to do it like that why can't we just do something else you know and then in the other way uh, once you start getting into the crunch of things the experienced designer is going to be able to accompany and guide and and give tricks of the trade to the less experienced designer so that's how i start to foresee and then i'm kind of stuck in the middle trying to uh, guide all of this process but it also allows me as a creative director to you know maybe focus a bit more time on some uh, areas that will need more focus and not worry so much about some other areas where down the line at some point you're all funneling through the same tunnel and everyone will require the same amount of attention and time but it just depends where you're putting your attention at which part of the process if that makes any sense you know so you know if you start off right from the start with the same level people everywhere you're all going to hit the same wall at the same time and at that point then it's it become really difficult to manage you know so you have to pace yourself and that's that's the uh, the idea so but to answer the question about the authenticity how do you create that authenticity i'll give you a trick um, that is as old as time itself, share a meal together. You know, when you share a meal with someone, you really go and, and figure out who they are. And there's something when we eat, we are, it's a natural thing that we do. And to discover whether it's our eating habits or preferences, create a conversation, and then you start to really get to know one another. It's a very simple thing, but sharing a meal together is a good starting basis, I think, to then open up and go okay it's it's a tr it's a trusting process so you know you have to trust each other so cooking each other a meal even even much more of a <laughs> creating authenticity there you know or breaking it it's <laughs> <laughs> true it's such a unique situation i think to be say a creative director or a leader of people within a creative process you know because it's not like you're running you know in other industries, there's a set of tasks and there's a there's a business there and there's a model and there's a way that you might manufacture stuff and deliver and stuff. But in a creative process, there's so much freedom, I guess, in a way, because you could go in any direction. So how does one lead that? And I know that's a great point that you say, okay, I'm going to get to know people and we're going to go through authenticity and we share meals. So that's a great foundation for developing those relationships. But is there a lot of management in that of those teams? Because you've obviously got to corral those ideas into, into something that's a reality. So what is leadership for you like in this kind of role? You get yourself a team, you build a team, and then you do it together, of course, you know, and, and your foundation is strong. You also have a team that they know what they're doing, you know, and, and so you have to give them the space to create. And that's for me is is experienced leadership there is to let your people do what it is that you hired them to do. Um, after that, it's about you know 
following along and, and remembering where you're coming from and trying to see the bigger picture. I see that as my creative role. My leadership role is there is to remember, go, okay, what are you doing this for? Is this really serving the purpose of the project? Or it's, uh, have you gotten yourself maybe lost into, you know, something that you enjoy at the moment, you know, and that's okay. So I'm a, I'm a passive leadership in that sense where I, um, I tend to really let, I trust people and I let them do what it is that they do. Now I'll intervene if I feel like, the dots are not going to be connecting later on. Uh, and I'll try to give them the, I'm not going to try to tell them what's wrong or what's not wrong. I'll try to have a conversation with them where eventually they will provide the answer to that and they will find the missing gap. But uh, it's it's about responding to one another, bouncing ideas with one another. And I think that's what creative leadership is. You don't necessarily have the time as a stage director to necessarily, stage director has to spend their time with all creative designers, but creative designers don't necessarily have the time to spend with, with all of them, especially in the world we live in. Uh, everything's tailor-made, you have so much time and, and everything's, you know, so I talk about sharing a meal, but it's often much later in the production time that you're able to really accomplish that because of scheduling, you know? So, uh, so you have to really trust people and create a safe space. I keep going back to the safe space, but creating a safe space is making sure that they know you've got their back. And if something goes wrong, you've got their back as well. And, and, and that, that saves bubble and space will allow them to go beyond what they even know themselves able to do. In order for, for these people to know what they're doing and be good at what they're doing, you know, well, they're already good at their craft. You just want them to be good with the idea you guys have been working together. How do you make sure all those people are, let's say, not on the same line, because that would be kind of boring, but, <laughs> but aiming towards the same goal. So the communication is clear and they know what they're working towards. If I tell you an instruction for making a recipe and there's 12 people in the room, everyone will understand it differently. So that is almost like, a, and it's something that you, for you is very clear. And for someone else, it's just complete Chinese or, or Espanol or any, any kind of language that is foreign to you. And then for other people, it's like, duh, that was so easy to understand. So you have to be sensitive to that. You have to be sensitive to the fact that you're not going to all understand the same thing at the same time and in the same place. That is also part of my role, I think, as a creative director is to keep an eye on this and to make sure that we are all understanding in our own ways. And if I have to translate it into someone else's language, and I don't mean, so to speak, language Uh, phonetically, but really, how do I make them feel what it is that we want to do? The best example for that for me is is, is giving a, a performer, in my days as a backstage manager, is giving a performer motivation or, or a, a specification of what is it that he's going to do on stage as a, as a character. If you tell him the character is a baron and, and it's, a, it's a romantic seducer, That might work for some people, but for others, it's not going to uh, appeal to them. So you have to give them example that's going to appeal to what their own memories and, and personal life are. And it, once you're able to make that connection, then it might have to do with the way that he had uh, lunch or breakfast that morning. 
but it's going to create the spark that's going to bring him on stage to deliver the intention and have the his eyes completely lit up so that the audience goes into it. So you you might just open a book and say, well, no, Franco said or Robert said that this character does this here. Yeah, but how do I bring the spark out of you? And I think that's that's often probably one of my biggest quality that I've developed over the years. And I've developed it, as I said, working backstage with people and then working front of house with the, all the, the technical managers is how do I get them to engage their passion? Engaging your passion, then therefore at that point, once the fuel is burning, you just let them go, you know? I love that. I love that analogy of uh, the recipe and everybody understanding it differently because it is something that is so prevalent. And when you understand that people are seeing things from their perspective and their 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 vision, then you can be more empathetic to helping them find their way. It takes time to do that because, um, and not everyone's going to want to invest the time into listening and to talking. And I feel that sometimes that's where it gets lost. And I think the process, uh, the creative process, is rushed at times because, you know what, I just hired you to do this, so why don't you just do it? And that's often, it's a, it's a technique that will work in some domain. Uh, publicity is a good example. You know, it's a, it's a fast pace and, you know, I hired the best, deliver. For performing arts, you need some time because at some point you'll also need to, it all ends up on stage and you need that person to feel the trust. And at the end of the day, that performer, especially in circus art, is going to risk their neck on the stage. So everything has to be, uh, the trust process throughout has to be solid uh, because it has an impact. Karma is a big thing in my life. You know, yeah, yeah. If you mess it up somewhere, it's going to catch up with you at some point. So uh, taking the time is not necessarily easy or, or sometimes it's tiring as a manager because uh, you're just like, you just want to say, look, uh, you know what you're doing, do it, you know? And, and at some point you might need to exercise that type of, of behaviors. That's, that's part of the process, but listening and, and trusting people for me is a, is a great way of bringing the positivity. You know? Last time that we spoke, um, Gab, you you mentioned something that I, I think I'd like to touch on today in the podcast about the three pillars of making a show in terms of the art side of it and the business side of it and the social responsibility. Is that the third pillar? Can you just tell us about that theory? Because I think that's really important when we think about making a show those three factors really play into perhaps the the end result and the purpose of of your each creation, right? Well, it's something that um, uh, now we're making more of a reference to, let's say, the circus arts or the live performing art, right? Live performing arts, uh, and especially when it comes down to circus arts, and it's something I've learned throughout all of my years with Cirque du Soleil. I've spent most of my professional career with them, and I've seen the beginnings, you know, at, uh, or what people would call the heydays of Cirque, into the massive uh, industry that it's become now. And it's fantastic. And I, you know, Cirque will continue to grow into what it what it wants to become. But there's something that I've come to learn over the years, and I've had shared with me. But as a, as a performer. Often as a circus performer, you come from different backgrounds, obviously, but you also come from different uh, disciplines. And so whether you're a gymnast 
or you are an acrobat, or you are a, a circus performer from generations of circus, there's a sense of um, the social aspect is really, really strong. And I say social, it's really where you come from, your social tissue, uh, and what makes you. And, and if it's juggling, let's say it's juggling, then I'll take an example of uh, Brazilians. For me, Brazilians are some of the best examples. They were missing from circus for many, many years. They weren't there. They weren't present. And also towards the end of the middle of the 90s, they start to emerge. And they start to become really present into the circus uh, world. But as you realize, they were coming from strong circus background or mostly from the streets. And there was something really um, pure about this. Now, you take this, you transpose it into the world. You have to adapt it to what is it that we're doing, and you have to teach them how to behave in such a world. So there's a social aspect to that, and that is a strong link to um, what it is that we want to do. Circus performance, circus arts, uh, have a very social aspect to it. Uh, the social aspect comes from the fact that it's often uh, performed in the streets. Uh, it's also something that comes from the streets. You go to school to learn it, yes, but you, you're really rapidly will test it into within an audience. And it's a, it's a s skills and, and a social aspect that uh, people will rely in, on each other and have each other's back. So that's really important. That's really defining the trust within those people and how you, you combine those different nationalities and bring them together creates really a social tissue that is quite unique in the world. Then you have the artistic project, you know, um, you want to bring forth innovation, you want to bring forth ideation, you want to bring forth, uh, you want to go forward, you want to be distinctive. So that's a very strong aspect that you have to deal with. And you have the economical aspect, the financial aspect. So you have a certain budget that you have to balance and play with. And, and these three pillars, the artistic, the social, and the financial, will pull each other out throughout it, their life whether it's the creation and then the performance of a show, uh, the financial is going to dictate a little bit of where the artistic goes. And the, the artistic will be also dictated by the social aspect. And the social aspect will pull all of this out and, and say, I'm real here. I'm true. I'm not just a color. You know, I have, I'm filled with emotions. And this is a very important pillar, I believe, for what create as a, an amazing live performance experience, which is we came to know as Cirque du Soleil. Dragon was one of them, you know, and, and I can name quite a few, the Seven Fingers, Cirque Loise. Uh, they, they all have a really great depth of investment into social life. Uh, and, I, and I say that social life is giving back to the communities, feeding the people that will emerge as well. So trying to help those people come out of uh, and give them an outlet. Uh, Cirque du Soleil had a program called Cirque du Monde for the longest time, where in, in each city, in cities around the world, they would get involved with uh, kids in, in needs uh, and they would try to give them some basic uh, circus skills. And some of them would emerge and eventually became a performer later down the road. That for me is a social aspect. So it's very important to, to balance this pillar. There pulling each other's leg, and it's necessary, and it's not easy, but it's very important.
As of late, of course, it was really easy to say that uh, maybe in the last few years, the Cirque du Soleil project itself felt more like a financial project. And that uh, that was a necessary part of the, the, the what I was describing as the pool earlier. We clearly felt it, you know, the, the social engagement felt it was not necessarily as strong as it was before. And the financial was really di- dictating how the artistic was going to have the tools to create or the time. Now, was it really a reality? Will I get bashed on the head for saying that? Maybe, you know, but uh, it's just, it's also what we felt, but it's, it came within a world that was accelerating and, and going much faster and trying to find shortcuts and trying to produce and, and create. And that's part of everyone's reality. But I just feel like within the circus arts, you need to respect those three pillars of the social aspect where people are coming from and at the time that they invest into creating what they do and the risk that they take on a nightly basis. Uh, and of course, your artistic proposition, which will create distinctivity and, and make you uh, you know, unique to the audience. And of course, the financial aspect, because it needs to be financially successful and you need to have the tools to go for it. So, yeah, I don't know if that helps uh, resume a little bit more of uh, my thought process, or maybe I got way too deep into it, you know, but. <laughs> well, I think you're backed up by, by that town when you, what you were saying, it was not only what we felt as part of the circus community on the evolution of Cirque, but uh, I think right now, if we look back with information, I think your thoughts are backed up with, with hard data, so. It's hard to say. It's hard to say out loud because, um, you know, there's, there's, you know, with the world of social media, uh, there's a lot of complaining and there's a lot of, uh, it's easy to write it down and go, well, they were wrong and that person was bad. And and I don't necessarily want to engage on this. We can do it on a one-to-one basis or as a group over dinner, we can, we can have conversations like that. But uh, uh, I'm very aware what we leave uh, socially, uh, the dust the particles that we leave on the social world, you know. So I try to enforce a certain level of positivity. I think that's very important. But in that needs to come also some level of critique. For me to go back and look at who I was and how can I make things better is an essential part of who I am. That introspection is essential. And I can't help but to also look at the world I was in. And I saw the difference over the year. I'm not going to tell you, look, Cirque was better then. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, And for that, I'll give you an example. I joined Cirque in 1994, let's say. And uh, when I was in Mister Las Vegas as a a young teenager, and all those performers back then kept saying, oh, Cirque du Soleil is so big. It's such a big corporation. It was so much better in the days of Nouvelle Experience, back at the Mirage. I was like, okay, so that's all I kept hearing about. But yet I was having the time of my life. And then once O opened 1998, everybody starts saying, well, it was better back then, such a big company, blah, 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 blah. So it made me realize, you know what? Today is the good old day, not five years ago. Today is the good old day. Today is the good old day where five years from now, people are going to say, well, this was a great time. That I understood rather quickly. So uh, I'm not going to be critical of Cirque in that sense, 
even as they evolve and change, I saw it myself and I accepted it. And I, I kept moving with it because that's just part of growth. It's an industry, it's a company that was born out of the dream of certain performers. And they carried that dream as far as they could. And at some point, you know what? Some of them started to leave and some of them broke off. And, and it's just part of normal relationship of life. And at some point, you know what? Guy, as the sole owner, decided that that was as far as he could go. And he handed it over to someone else. And that someone else had a plan. And that plan was to go in that direction. And they went there. And they went as fast as they could, as far as they could, and as hard as they could, the same way that we deliver shows. Now, the COVID situation made it... Uh, impossible now a lot of people would say yeah but this person's been there and that and i don't want to get into those details i'm trying to really focus on positivity and 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 i think it's important that we look back especially as we're paused right now and go okay what went wrong what did we not do right or what, what could we learn now i'm not in the company so that's not up to me to do that. I can only do it for my own personal life and, and process. And I just hope and I wish that the people that are in charge of companies, and I'm not just Cirque, other companies, have that reflection and go, okay, how can we correct things? How can we go forward? And where do we want to go? And each company is doing that at the moment. And some people are not going to like where it's going. It's just normal. And some people you know, are going to emerge and create new new ideation and new companies and new proposition. And that's fantastic. So you have to be able to flexible to, to embrace all of this and go along with the ride. If you attach yourself emotionally too strong onto one thing, you're going to be disappointed. It's going to be a, a crushing. You're right. And in your three pillars, I like, I really like that idea. I also think that Cirque was not alone. And if anything, this last months or year um, have, shown that within the performing arts that there was a disconnect between the three pillars you mentioned and how they were evolving. It, not, not even only the, the performing arts, but in general in the arts world, because, I mean, you look here to the United States and you have, we see you white American theater, but at the same time, outside of the Broadway idea, well, I look a lot into, into museums and galleries because that's a little bit of my my other part of myself, the other part of myself. But um, they started with uh, For the Culture 2020 and changed the museum, which I think are addressing this disconnect that there was between who proposes art, who validates it, and towards who is it directed, you know? And how do we back that up financially so it is sustainable and we can leave as creatives or people in the industry, not only the artists, but everyone that makes this, this work. So I think it's important what you mentioned. And I don't think Cirque was alone. I don't think it is the one case. I think the industry was headed in that one direction and dragged a lot of institutions and ways that we do things. and. And maybe it is time to reevaluate, and I think we're doing it. The, the industry was trying to follow along with what other members of the industry, which is the financial aspect, is is also the driving force. The financial aspect will be like, well, look, I'll give you money, but I'm worried. You know, are gonna are you gonna able to entertain my customer for an hour and a half, or is it more seventy five minutes, or is it more like you know? So uh, there's a lot of uh, the world is going rapidly 
um, into a direction that we don't necessarily control. And it's going faster and faster and faster. If I take Vegas as an example, Vegas, you know, was filled with certain level of experience 20 years ago. And now it's, it's a very different town, uh, bigger, better, faster, you know, whether it's a nightclub with a DJ and the pool party and all of these things. And that's great, you know, and, 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 and artists really believing into, uh, production shows anymore well you know there's a big fight at the moment pulling like no keep those production shows it's important that people sit down but if the people at the financial the helm of the financial guide had it their way they would probably try to accelerate things so that the customer would be always constantly engaged and that's just a normal part of who we are so i think the arts comes in that is a necessary mean at that point to really be able to go, no, let me slow things down here. Let me give the audience something that they disconnect and give them an experience so that they can engage into something else after that will, you know, if, if we talk about Vegas, which is a world into itself, but uh, it has to do with the same way as, a, as if you do a touring show or you're showing a cruise ship or a show in the back alley, is how do you engage your audience members so that they disconnect and that they become right there with you at that moment for however long it is that you want to do. If it's 45 minutes, 45 minutes. But you have different ways of doing storytelling to, to achieve that. Because what you want is to, yeah, of course, you want them to take pictures and post it and, and share it. And it's beautiful and it's visually wow. But you want to touch their heart. You want to touch them into their emotions. You want them five days after you see the show, they go, wow, that image is stuck with me. That that feeling is stuck with me. When you're able to achieve that, you will go further and beyond and, and you know, you'll be remembered. And that's something that I've, I've learned from, you know, my years with Cirque, because obviously Cirque has created those kind of products. But I live, I live that through uh, also the world of clowning and comedy, because the way a clown or a comedy or a comedian may make you laugh is also something that connects us, you know, and that's something that creates uh, authentic emotion. And that's, I think, what that's what we're after. Uh, it feels more and more like the world wants us to create something that is instantaneously beautiful and it's going to be on Instagram and it's going to be shared and there's going to be taglines. And yeah, that's part of what we have to deal with. We need to create in that sense too. But I think if you create emotions, you'll surprise your audience member and they're going to walk out going, wow, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect to be touched this way. And that's what I keep aiming for. And I, I believe that's what we all want to aim for. It's just a, we're being pulled in different direction, of course, by the world that is rapidly changing and evolving. Absolutely. And I, I think that the world is rapidly changing, but human behavior is rapidly changing. You know, we, you know, 20 years ago, we were not walking around with smartphones in the with the complexity that we have today. We don't have the uh, TV on demand and music on demand and we don't buy CDs or albums anymore. We listen to Spotify. So that all of that foundation, and I, I watch it when I look at my children and I see their behaviours at, you know, 7 and 10, that... Uh, it's completely different than what I was seven and ten because we I was living on a different planet compared to what it is now. And so then how do we as artists and artisans respond to that? And like you said, reach through that noise or white noise, because that's what it really is becoming faster and more stimulus and, and lots of it impact how do you reach through that and 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 touch those people? And I'm I'm fascinated by that process because I think it's 
is it easier or harder than it was? I'm not sure. It's just that's our challenge, right? I think uh, if I apply it to show creation and, and storytelling, I would um, I would try to, you know, in order to engage an audience, I would try to set forward the rule of the game as rapidly as possible so that they understand what it is that they're in. You can do that through marketing and through different ways of bringing them. Once they sit down, they have a certain level of expectations. And how do you surprise them and how do you engage them rapidly into a show and have them abandon where they're at? It's a normal now, it's funny to say, but it's become now a normal human behavior that people are going to pull their cell phone and take pictures. What can you do about that? You know, it's just part of it, you know, so you either embrace it and you can create moments where you celebrate that. Uh, and then just sometimes just the pureness of a, a single moment on stage and, and how you reach them emotionally. You don't need to tell them to turn away their cell phone. They're going to do it by themselves and that they'll learn by themselves. Uh, the audience are much smarter than we give them credit for sometimes. And I think that's, Maybe sometime a mistake that uh, that we'll do is trying to explain too much and try to uh, to justify too much what it is that we want to do. I think if you set up your rules right and and you set up the, the narrative properly, uh, audience will go along. You know, you have to respect the audience in that sense. So Franco and and well, Dragon and and uh, the likes of like Robert Lepage were great. I learned so much from just seeing how they create and how they set the rules and how they would uh, set the narrative. You didn't have to explain to me. You didn't have to use words. You know, just visually, you set the tone. You, you, you create references that, or you present references that everyone can recognize. And at that point, you engage. Now, remember what I said about explaining something and that 12 people understand it differently? It's the same in an audience. But they all have the same relationship. If it's if it's a chair on stage, we all understand what a chair is. Now, our interpretation, what a chair means or what it is, is is belongs to all of us. But from that sense, then you you start creating a narrative, and after that, you can build around that. You know, and that. Uh, so I, I believe that you have to really engage and and engage intellectually with the audience because that's what they want as well. They want to be challenged intellectually, not just visually. And on that, in terms of, you know, when you're talking about engaging, since you've been in the circus environment and and outside that as well since 1994, there's been a massive evolution of technology off the stage but also within the stage in terms of what's being put into the shows in terms of automation and projection and interactivity what what's your thought about as a you know a director coming in to direct stuff that is now very highly technical when it used to be more just performers on stage and a more of a manual thing what 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 are your thoughts on the evolution of that well for me the role of uh, well how can i say technology and once it's in its best of use I never notice it. And that's, for me, the best use of uh, technology. Now, uh, you have to embrace and, and stay up to date as to what's happening because they're all tools to help tell your storytelling. And that's what they should be. And that's the role. If they become the storytelling, that's a different thing, you know, and that's, if they become the thing that you, 
you you want to showcase something and uh, look i've made that that mistake myself in in my own creation and sometimes it takes an outside eye to come in and go hey you're using that way too much here it's like oh yeah okay so you doze it you balance it and then you remember what you wanted to use for remember what it is that you wanted to do with that it's a tool to bring forth your storytelling uh, it is not the story you know so uh, you need to find a balance between that and um, and i think it's a necessary mean you know and and the more the tools are out there uh, the more ways you have to tell the story. But at the end of the day, not feeling it is probably the best way to, to uh, experience technology. Once you see a show and there's just, you know, depends, of course, what kind of show it is. If it's a concert in an arena, man, I want to feel that technology. I want it to hit me in the face. I want it to be, but it's always there to propel forward what this, what's on stage, whether it's a live singer or performances, but you want it to envelop you, right? So larger settings, such as the Olympics or closing opening ceremonies, you want technology here to, to really help propel forward the majestic effect. But you have technology that are uh, as simple as, uh, you know, as, a, as a lamp and shadows. You know? That's the best example. People have used it over the years, but... Uh, Ka is the best example of the world's greatest technology. And, and yet one of the most touching moments is when he tells her story through shadows that he does with his hand over the big wall. And it's one lamp. You know, you spend $200 million in the theater and that's probably one of the most touching things. But it's part of the journey. It's part of dozing it, right? Technology blows your mind and it, it, it tells the story. You understand the language. You understand the, the codes it's giving you. And you embark on it and at some point tone it down and then give that moment here and it balances everything you know uh, car for me is a is a great way of using technology to uh, now no one has all that budget and, and able to uh, to play with those toys but i think it's a good example if you're gonna have all these budget how do you make it the to the best of its use and capacity. Uh, it's the same when you walk into a Dragon water show, whether it's a you know, House of Dancing Water, Le Rêve, or Oh. Uh, at some point, you, you, you forget. You're just leave, living the emotions you're, you're feeling because that's what the director is doing. He's, he's creating a painting in front of you, and then you're, you're feeling from it. You know? You're not just blown away by my God, there was 17 winches in that one act alone. You know, they're going such high speed. Man, yeah, it's only us that notices that, you know? Yeah, I always liked from French this idea of le tableau, painting your scene on stage. Well, le tableau is, a, is a, well, you know, I look, I was blessed. Like, I could not be luckier than I have been in my own journey. I wanted to be I knew from a young age, my father was in the arts of uh, performing arts. My mom is an artist herself as a painter, as a, you know, she does everything she does is, is, is incredible. So I knew I wanted to be in the arts. Uh, I had a pat set. I was going to that school. I was going to learn this, this, and that, and that never happened. <laughs> never, never happened. I ended up in Vegas because I was a, a rough teenager. I ended up living with my dad and then Mister was my, my college. Mister was my, my, God, you can do all of this, learn all of this. But then really, really rapidly, I fell into the lap of Franco. Uh, at the age of 20, I was hired as a, 
videographer to document the creation of O and Lenuba. So I became an observer and I became someone that really just, I had no due to the creative team. You know, I, it's not like I had deliveries or deliverables. I was just there to help them. I was a tool to help them, you know, achieve what they needed to achieve. But what it allowed me to do is watch, of course, the Dragon way of creating is, is such, you know, it's a difficult one, but it's very authentic. You know, you really get pure truth out of the creative process. Um, not to say that you don't get it through different means, but this is such a unique way. And when you're, when you're 20 year old and you're watching that evolve in front of you, it is transforming. Uh, especially when you sit next to Dragon, and next to Franco, and you listen to his thought process and his questioning and his interaction with people, that became my university. This was really, and I only realized that 10 years after, 15 years after, all these things I had learned and listened to during that process. All that to say that, oh, I've always described oh, uh, oh, I think is, is the epiphany of a creative team. And as you saw at the time, those cre that creative team, this, it, it, it broke off in different uh, sphere and different pole after that. Uh, they had achieved probably the best that they could do. And at that point, they decided, you know what, that's as far as we can go and we need to branch off. And, and that's normal, that's a natural path. But all to is to bring the idea of le tableau is, is how do you combine something and how do you create and how do you find a balance and how do you make that evolve? And I've always told people that O is like watching a painting that transforms into a different painter, into another painter. Now, I would often reference to the Bellagio Gallery of Arts that was there at the time, which was break, groundbreaking at the time, but you watch a Dali transform into a Picasso. And that's what I think Franco does best is to really, and, and, and he does it with live performance art and finds a focal point so well. So the idea of Le Tableau for me is you're, you're creating a feast for the eye, you know, and that's what I think live performance is. Sometimes you want to have a narration, you want to have explanation, but you don't necessarily want to tell. Telling a story is important, but letting the audience figure out their own stories of what your own story was is, I think, it's, this is where the magic happens. And this is where most people don't necessarily understand. And it's, it's difficult to do. It's not easy. But if you are able to create a balanced tableau, the audience will feed into it and will read it. And if it's balanced well, they, you, will, you will guide them through it. And that's a, it's a fantastic way of uh, creating and uh, very inspiring. And it's not everyone that has the capacity, of course, to create that way. It's a very demanding and costly, of course, because it takes time. But O in itself was a, an extraordinary... Look, I, I, I was a very eager and curious uh, young um, person, and I've always been, and I think that's part of... Uh, we should always be an apprentice of some sort. But I remember being in Mystère and being so fascinated with that show and thinking, how the hell did they come up with all of this? So I would go and watch old creation tapes that were still available on VHS. And then, you know, there was a way, maybe you could say a recipe, right? Uh, there was a, an ideation and there was acts with transitions and they would lead into one another. 
But once it came down to O, and I remember listening to this from the mouth of Gilles and, and Franco in the creative office, they had changed, they, they, they had purposely changed this way of creating to shake them, to make sure that they were not going to just continue in that route. They had ex, ex, uh, experienced that route. They had excel in that route. Now they wanted to create something else. And so as opposed to create a 90-minute show that was filled with acts and transition, they said, why don't we do 30 different tableaus of three minutes? And that was, I think, the basic idea of O oh, at the beginning. The, now, I'm, I was not there at the time. I'm, I don't want to, don't take my word from all of it, but this was a real thing. 30 tableaus of three minutes long each. So how do you create that? Well, each tableau has to be filled with certain things. So, okay, let's let's put his, this here, and let's put this here, and let's put this here, put this here. And all of a sudden, you have a really rich palette of, uh, of things you can put into. And when you watch a show like O, you realize the amount of various and different discipline and different performances that is presented to you. Now, at the end of the day, it merged into its own thing. It was not 30 tableaus of three minutes, but this way of creating set forth a new way of creating a show for them, you know, which when you watch O compared to Mister, it's a very different kind of experience, very different kind of uh, engaging the audience while respecting the same level of intelligence. You make me think so much about Peter Greenaway and the way he does films as well. But oh, this is fantastic. So thank you very much. What would you say? I mean, just because we do, I think we've men you've mentioned, but what's your favorite thing about your job? Oh, my favorite thing about my job is um is doing my job. So that's really the favorite thing about my job is doing my job, you know, that, and I think in, as we live in this pandemic, uh, the only thing I wish for is to be able to do that job again. But the best thing in that job, I think, is to uh, break into new, is always having a blank page in front of you and try to write a new way of doing things. There is no such thing as a recipe that you repeat, you know, that exists in the kitchen, but as you do shows, you you want to change it. You want to, that's my way. You have to find a balance between good storytelling and innovation um, and, and try to challenge yourself. Um, and I've always tried to take that own path on my, my career, whether it's from resident show, touring shows, uh, arena touring, uh, I did dinner shows, uh, live events, concerts and as of late i was doing shows on cruise ships you know try to to challenge yourself and uh, and always be in a zone that you don't fully complete completely understand and comprehend but rest assured that you're together as a team and you'll find solutions together as a team because that's how you get things done you know there's often visionaries be behind some some groups and teams but uh it's the team that, uh, so for me, that's probably one of the things I love most about my job is the team and the blank page that together we can, um, you know, it's, it's a nerve wracking thing, but how do you go forward? How do you write something that hasn't been done or hasn't been done this way, you know? And that's, uh, that's part of the, that's the spark. I love that. I want to be part of that again too. <laughs> yeah. Right. I can't wait. <laughs> Um, we also ask this question always in our podcast. So if there's anything that you change about your job or the industry, what would that be? Well, I think I, we've touched on it a little bit earlier. I think it's a, a introspection of um, 
what it is that we want to do and and for me the vision uh, has to be clear and i've always i've always asked anyone i work with what's the vision what's what is it that you want to do and it's not just within Cirque. yes i spend most of my life with Cirque, but i've also worked other places but what's the vision and i think now we have a chance to reclarify and 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 maybe change our vision you know and adapt it to the world we live in and we have the power because we we are who we are we have the power to change and to correct the course of history so um, if it means let's not do things a certain way and we can reflect on that right now let's do it uh, i think we're all doing it individually and i think once we get back around a table that conversation will be present in all areas and i think that's the only thing i would change about my job is is um, keep changing the way we do things and keep making it better i want to throw out there one last question because we've spoken about food so much today uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you were to pick one person to have or a couple of person that you have never had lunch or dinner with that work in the entertainment industry who would you pick Wow, that's a good question. There's so many people. I'm fascinated with some of the, uh, I think we're all fascinated with some of the pillars of the industry, right? The, the giants of the industry. Uh, to to share a meal with uh, someone like, um, I think, uh, Steve Jobs would be absolutely uh, stunning, you know, just to get to, to, you know, even if it's just to talk about the basketball game from last night, would be thrilling just because you get to share a moment with people like that. Steve Jobs is no longer with us, of course, but someone like Bob Iger, these are people that have defined or, or redefined the industry. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, I would love to share meals with uh, the people I listen to, the music I listen to. I would love to, and also I can't really name people so specifically, but... Uh, whoever turns me on creatively, I would love to share a meal with them. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Gabrielle, for joining us today and sharing us your work and life and your current situation. I really appreciate it. It was just lovely to get insight into your thoughts on the industry. Well, thank you. And I uh, appreciate this uh, very humbling, uh, you know, like uh, opportunity to speak and share my thoughts. And, uh, and I can't wait to meet uh, you guys uh, on a creative project somewhere and then same with the listeners to you never know because you put it out there and something can happen and that's how you that's how that's how it happens you know so you have to put yourself out there uh, I'm doing it so that maybe it inspires someone else and if it inspires someone else then wow that's a great thing already so we would love to hear from you our listeners on who you would like us to feature on this podcast or what topics fascinate you there's a link in our podcast description where you can send us your podcast requests and guest nominations. Theatre Art Life provides regular monthly webinars and podcasts for free. And if you have the means, donations can be made via a link in the podcast description. We would be thankful for any support you can give us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Life, the global media site for entertainment at www.theatreartlife.com. And you can follow us on all social media platforms. We want to thank David Zare for composing the music for our podcast. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre Art Life podcast. Thanks for listening.